Thank you very much, Mark. Good evening, everyone. How are you doing? Yes, it's half term. Let me hear you say, woo for half term. If you're, a, if you're a teacher or a pupil, such an amazing feeling. I remember last time I was speaking on the Sunday at the end of half term. Always a bad day. So this is so much better. I feel in a much better mood than last time I spoke. Um, Anyway, I'm talking about Esther tonight, so if you, ha- if you have a Bible, then uh, you can be maybe making your way to Esther chapter 4. Um, but before we get there, I just want to talk about um, Disney films really briefly. So I'm sure everybody has their favourite Disney film. Everybody got a favourite Disney film? So this is my favourite Disney film, Aladdin. Um, and this is because when I was about maybe eight, maybe nine, this is showing how old I am, my mum bought me the video, not the DVD, I really am old, the video of Aladdin, and my, me and my siblings just used to watch, watch it on repeat, so um, I can actually recite the words of the whole, the whole film, and sing all the words, and I often think that if um, I was in some really dreadful accident, and I kind of had amnesia, and I forgot my name and where I lived and who I was married to and all that kind of dreadful stuff that happens to you if you had a bad accident. I genuinely think if somebody put this picture in front of me, I would go, I can show you the world, shining, shimmering. I think it would all come back because I think it's so deeply inside me that I can do the whole, the whole film, which is very sad. And anyway, I'm, I'm very bossy and I'm the eldest child. And I was so inspired by Aladdin that I decided that I wanted to direct my siblings in our own version of Aladdin. So here you go. This is, this is my sister, who's Jasmine, and my brother, who was Aladdin. They'd absolutely kill me for showing that because they're now like 25 and 21, so it's good they're not here. So then I, we directed our own, our own version, which was, was wonderful. Um, I just wanted an excuse really to show you that picture. I think it's very cute. But so the great things about a Disney movie that they all kind of have to have in common, isn't it? They have to have some sort of love story and then there's a good guy and then there's a bad guy and there's normally a happy ending. And I think that um, when you think about the Old Testament, you don't necessarily think that the stories are particularly Disney-like. But... um, Esther, I think, in some senses, is a bit like a Disney story because there's a love story, there's a good guy, there's a bad guy. And um, even though in the whole book of Esther there's not really any mention of God, I think that the story and the way in which Esther and uh, Mordecai, will come to him in a minute, uh, make their decisions, I think um, can teach us a lot about the people maybe that God wants us to be. So... um, Maybe we should move it on from that picture. <laughs> I'm going to uh, just quickly give you like a, the first bit of Esther, uh, the first part of the story, and then the passage that I've been told to preach about is um, from chapter 4. So cast your mind back to uh, the Persian Empire about 500 years before Jesus was born and enter King Xerxes. I'm hoping that's how you say it. That's what Chris told me, Xerxes. Who's, um, I don't know, when I read it, I think he's like not terribly bright and quite easily manipulated by people who give him advice. So classic kind of king enjoys banqueting and doing very little and <laughs> having people serve him. And he is married to Queen Vashti 
Here she is. And I love this picture because <laughs> uh, Queen Vashti basically has a bit of a strop when she's called to go and see the king. And she's like, no, I don't want to go. Uh, I'm not going to do what you say, which is really quite feminist for the Persian Empire, 500 years before the birth of Christ. So uh, consequently, she's cast out of the kingdom. There you go. Flee from me, Vashti, if you're not going to listen to me. And so King Xerxes needs a new wife. So he says to his advisors, um, can you advertise locally for a new wife? I can't be a king without a wife. And uh, quite near to where they are, there's uh, this chap called Mordecai who uh, has a very beautiful orphaned niece called Esther. And Mordecai says, look, Esther, you're very, very beautiful. I think it would be great if you, I don't know, auditioned or uh, put yourself forward to be the new queen. Why don't you do that? And Esther kind of doubts herself but says, okay, this is a bit of an opportunity. Maybe my life will get better if I I'm the queen, and so she does this kind of quite cringe early version of blind date and <laughs> goes and uh, stands before the king, and uh, the story goes that she is very beautiful, and she's selected, and she becomes uh, queen. So there you go. It's kind of Disney. There's a bit of a love story going on there. Um, and meanwhile, it wouldn't be Disney without a baddie. So enter... Haman, who is one of the king's advisors and is kind of hanging around uh, court. And um, at the time, there's this, this like Jewish community um, who, as you know, there's like the big story of the people of Israel throughout the Old Testament. And uh, Haman, the bad guy, doesn't like the Jews at all. And uh, Mordecai and Esther are Jews. And um, Mordecai, who uh, kind of had recommended to Esther that she become the new queen, is kind of hanging around the palace quite a lot. And Haman really doesn't like that. So he goes to King Xerxes and he says, look, there's loads of Jews here and I don't really like them very much. Um, and, you know, they're bad news for you as well. So why don't you proclaim that the Jews are going to be annihilated? So the king, who I said was maybe not very bright <laughs> and easily manipulated, goes, okay, Haman, that's a really good idea and issues a proclamation which says that the Jews will be annihilated. So Mordecai hears about this and begins to obviously be very distraught because his niece is a Jew and is married uh, to the king. So this is going to be really bad news for the Jews. So if you have a Bible, let's pick it up at Esther chapter 4. So uh, I'm going to read from 1 to 17. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was a great mourning amongst the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes." When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gates. 
Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain to her. And he told him to instruct her to go to the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back, went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. So that's where our passage ends, but I need to tell you the end of the story, otherwise... It wouldn't be a very good Disney story. So Esther then is saying, oh, I don't want to go to the king, Mordecai. This is really scary. If he finds out I'm a Jew, he will certainly banish me from the palace. There's no way that he would allow me to stay there. Why are you making me do this? And Mordecai is saying, no, but this is why. Maybe this is why you're king. You have to stand up for the Jews here. So uh, eventually Esther goes to the king. Goes to the king and says, look, this is this dreadful uh, plot that Haman has got to try to destroy the Jews. And actually, I'm a Jew, and my family are, and please, can you stop it? And the king says, yes, Haman is bad, and destroys Haman. And um, God is faithful to, to Esther in her conviction. And I'll leave you to go home and read the rest of the story. So, uh, a bit of a love story, a bit of a good guy, a bit of a bad guy. I just want to give a little bit of a note about the context. It's really, really important that we put this story in context and exactly what Esther did in context. So at the time, as you can see from the example of Queen Vashti, women were to be seen and not heard. Their job was entirely to obey. When Vashti refused to go to the king when she was summoned, she was then sent away from the palace forever. The second thing is at the time from the story, I guess I've already mentioned that the Jews were not favored at all. So Esther kind of admitting that she was one at this point was a very brave thing to do. And as the story says, no one was to presume to be able to enter into the king's presence without being summoned. So the fact that she kind of goes off her own back and tries to go to speak to the king was a really brave thing to do. There is no doubt about it that Esther's sense of conviction and integrity in this moment is one of the most compelling, I think, in the whole of the Bible. So I really hope that you have your seatbelts fastened because <laughs> no sermon on Esther can be tame. 
when I was reading this story again, it's one of my favorite stories, when I was reading it this week, I was just thinking, wow, what she did was really hardcore. <laughs> and I just felt constantly challenged by it myself. So I've pulled out kind of three things that I want to share with you. And they're, they're challenges that I really felt. Um, and so maybe they might be a bit of a challenge to you too. So firstly, what I want to say is that Esther listened to those that she respected, which in this instance was Mordecai. And my question to you is, do you have people in your life that you really, really respect and that you're really prepared to listen to? Sometimes it's hard to have strength of conviction when you're kind of generating it yourself. And whilst we all have a conscience about the right or the wrong thing to do, in isolation, I think actually we can be quite weak. One thing that the Christian experience has taught me is how important it is to really seek out good role models. And when you respect them, to listen to their advice. Esther was probably petrified of approaching the king. Yet her relationship with Mordecai over the years had taught her that he could be trusted and that he wouldn't get her to do something which was not not the right thing to do. She knew that Mordecai was a wise man. And as a result, she was prepared to follow his instructions. And I'd just like you to just take a moment and just reflect on who your Christian role models are. I sometimes think the best people to look up to are those that have maybe been a Christian for quite a long time. How often do you genuinely spend time with people like that? to be molded by some of their ideas, to listen and to share to their, their experience of faith. I'm not saying that we should stop thinking for ourselves, never, because actually some of the Christians I respect the most, I sometimes disagree with them. But spending time with those that have been Christians for a while and who are really wise and strong in faith, I think is really, really important. And if you feel like there's not really those people around you, I kind of feel like in the age of the internet, there isn't really any excuse for not tapping into some of the wisdom out there. How many sermons and talks and experience of, of faith and testimony are loaded onto the internet every week? If you were just to say, right, every week I'm going to listen to one podcast of somebody in the Christian world who I respect, I'm sure it would really build your faith in some new and fresh way. Secondly, Esther had unbelievable integrity. And when her people were being threatened, she was unafraid to speak up. And I wonder about us, you know, when we're put in that situation, do we speak up for those that really need it? Do we have that sense of integrity? Rick Warren uh, talks about integrity, and he says, integrity comes from the word integer, which means whole. So what he says is, Having integrity means your whole life should be the same. There's this kind of transparency that runs through it. This is what he writes. He says, the opposite of integrity is compartmentalizing your life. Integrity means all parts of your life are integrated together. You act the same no matter where you go. You don't act one way at work, another way at church, and another way with your friends. Integrity is being truthful in every area of your life, even with the things that people don't see. Who you are is who you are, always. 
And Esther was a Jew, and she couldn't deny that. And when the time came, she stood up and she said, look, my people are being persecuted. She stepped up, she protested. Both her life and Mordecai's life were transparent. And the title of this sermon that I was asked to speak on is, is kind of speaking out and having integrity in difficult circumstances. And that in my limited experience, I think that when we seek to be transparent and make our lives whole rather than separate compartmentalized pieces, we become more the people that God intended us to be. I'm going to tell you a bit of an embarrassing story about myself. Um, so, obviously, I think it's really important that when you drive, you drive safely. <laughs> obviously, that is a belief that I hold, <laughs> um, because otherwise our roads would be very, very unsafe. But, truth be told, I'm not always a terribly safe driver. And um, last summer... I was on my way, embarrassingly, from my house in Hanwell, just over here to Northfields, to the Mellowish's house, and I was late. And so, not only did I drive very fast, but, um, because you don't want to be late for the vicar, <laughs> I drove very fast, but I also, I didn't wear my seatbelt. I know, it's bad, it's bad, it's really, really bad. So, I was driving along uh, Boston Road, literally out of nowhere literally she came out of nowhere this policewoman on a motorbike shot out behind me like lights flashing sirens going I was like oh man she's seen I'm not wearing my seatbelt and so she flashed me over and I came over to the side and I, I, I absolutely hate being in trouble it's my worst thing so I wound down the window and I was like I'm so sorry please don't send me to jail <laughs> And then I said something like, I'm a teacher, that would ruin my whole career. <laughs> and also, please don't tell the vicar. <laughs> and, she, and she was almost like, oh my gosh, no, it's fine. Like, you just weren't wearing your seatbelt, so you need to pay £60. And I was like, that's fine, I'll give you more. I'll give you whatever you need. Just don't hold it against me. I'm a really good person. Um, and so I had to pay this fine for not wearing my seatbelt. And then by the time I'd filled in all the paperwork, I was so much more late. I was so much later to the Mellowishes than I would have been otherwise. So then Mark was like, so why are you late? It's like, I can't lie to the vicar. <laughs> so <laughs> I was just stopped by the police for driving too fast and not wearing my seatbelt on the way to your house. Should I just go now? <laughs> um, so that's a silly example, but it's about integrity because clearly I believe it's really important that when you drive, you're safe. I believe that. Yet in practice, I really let myself down and I wasn't being a safe driver. And so, uh, you know, what I believed wasn't what I did. And I've learned a valuable lesson. <laughs> um, and when I was thinking a little bit about this idea of standing up for people, um, you know, there's only a couple of times when I've really stood up for someone who I feel has been unfairly treated. Um, I remember when I first started working in the school where I'm at now, um, there, I saw like an interaction between two teachers, between a deputy head and a trainee, where I felt like this deputy head was really, really horrible to this trainee teacher. And it just didn't sit right with me. And I thought, I don't want to go and say to him what you did 
was really horrible because he's just going to turn around and say, well, stop moralizing. Like, who are you? <laughs> You're just this new teacher. But it, I just, it really got to me and I just felt like I had to do something about it. So it was very, very nerve wracking. But I went to see this guy and I said, hi, you don't know who I am. I'm a new teacher here. Um, you're a deputy head. This is a bit awkward, but uh, I saw the way that you, you spoke to that teacher, and, and I just didn't think it was okay. Um, and I just needed to say that to you, actually, because she didn't deserve to get to be treated like that. And I think probably in his head he thought, you moralizing idiot. Like, why, why are you telling me what to do? But what he actually said was, you're right, and... Uh, I'm going to go and apologize to her. And I kind of left his room, like, trembling. But, but actually, I was so at peace with myself because had I not done that, I would have felt as though I didn't have integrity because I'd seen something that wasn't okay. And in my own little way, I felt that I really needed to do something about that. And I guess I really want to encourage you, maybe there's somebody in your workplace or in your family who you feel is not being treated particularly well. And, or there may be, might just be a situation that you think is wrong. And, you know, if it's on your heart and when you pray about it, you feel convicted that you need to do something about it, then, you know, do something about it. Mordecai said to Esther, maybe you were put there for such a time as this. Maybe you were put in whatever that situation is for such a time as this. The final thing I want to say about Esther is that she knew that there was huge risk associated with her going to see the king. She knew that because she knew what had happened to Queen Vashti. She says to Mordecai, how can I go before the king? He's not summoned me for 30 days. How can I presume to enter into his presence? He's going to kill me. She knew the risk involved, but she still did it. And when I read this this week, I just thought, gosh, what risks am I prepared to take for my faith? Sometimes there's a huge risk in speaking out about your convictions. And let's be realistic, you know, it works out okay for Esther, but there's loads of instances in the Bible where it doesn't. Like Stephen spoke out about his faith and was stoned to death. Like I'm not trying to sugarcoat it. Often the risk is very real and we don't always have the happy ending that there is in this story here. And I think that, you know, in the UK, we're very fortunate. We don't face persecution or death for standing up for our Christian convictions. But I do think that sometimes when we seek God and we do speak out, sometimes we are maybe rejected by friends and family. And sometimes you have to take a hit for speaking out about what you think is right. When I reflected on this, it did kind of make me think about the risks that are sometimes taken by people, Christians, believers across the world. And um, as we're thinking about this, I just want to show you this brief video about the church in China because, you know, when people step out and take risks, sometimes some of the most exciting things take place. And um, I think this video shows that. It's just a couple of minutes. Have you ever thought about what church looks like in another country? What it would be like to risk everything for simply following Jesus? 
These are the secret believers. It's 1949 and the People's Republic of China has just been established. China is ruled by a guy called Mao Zedong, an atheist and communist dictator who seeks to destroy Christianity at all costs. It is estimated that there are one million Christians in China at this point in time. And for the next 30 years, they face severe persecution. Believers imprisoned, pastors abused, and Bibles were burnt in their thousands. By 1979, there was an estimated 10 million believers, and that number soon doubled to 20 million. How did this great revival take place under such severe persecution? At the time, reports from China said that there was one thing that stood out, and it was the amount of time that these believers would spend in prayer. But it wasn't that they were praying for their own suffering. They were praying for their country. They were praying that revival would come to China. This is where the revival started, with prayer. One of the things that really surprised Mao Zedong and his government was that this revival wasn't made up of old people. It was made up of youth and young adults. Young people who could not only see the problems with communism, but could also see the freedom that you could find in Jesus. There were so many believers in China, but nowhere near enough Bibles. Open Doors had a vision of delivering one million Bibles in one night. And through prayer and hard work and against all odds, Project Pearl achieved this. But there was still a thirst for Bibles. Over the last 30 years, Open Doors has delivered more than 40 million Bibles and pieces of Christian literature into China. Operations like Project Pearl have inspired Chinese Christians to begin printing their own Bibles in China. They now produce over 1 million Bibles a month. Today there are an estimated 80 million Christians in China and there is no longer a Bible drought. This isn't the end. There are new trials to overcome, new goals to reach, and more people who need to hear about Jesus. Christians are still being persecuted. House churches are still being attacked and shut down, with members beaten and imprisoned. Thanks, guys. So I wanted to show you that video because... Um, I thought that the, the risks that, that were taken there by that organization, Open Doors, and that's just one example of, of taking those Bibles into China. It's unbelievably risky. And then the Chinese church themselves, like printing their own Christian literature, unbelievably risky. But the results of that 
are so, so exciting. And the church has spread in China um, unbelievably quickly and is growing day by day. And I think what I want to say is that, you know, Esther, t- Esther took a risk and God was really faithful. These people are taking a risk and God is really faithful. And I sometimes look at my own life and I look at the church here in the UK and I just sometimes think that we've lost that element of risk. And so maybe consequently we don't see the exciting things happen that we, we long for. You know, I often have conversations with people about church and I say, you know, have you, have you ever been to church or is church a part of your experience? And I'm always surprised by how many people say, yeah, I used to go to church. And then I often think, oh, well, probably the reason you stopped is because you didn't have time. And actually, that's rarely the answer. People rarely say, no, I didn't go because I didn't have time. People normally say, I stopped going because I thought it was boring. I stopped going to church because I thought it was boring. And I find that really bizarre. Because when I read Esther and Esther's story and what she did, it's not boring. It's full of risk and it's full of excitement. And the Bible is full of people like that. Full of crazy stories of risk and excitement. It's not boring. And if you just read a gospel about Jesus' life, like Jesus' life is not boring. And then if you read about the early church and in Acts and how it grew and crazy stuff happened, it's not boring. And if you, I think, come to St. Paul's and get involved in some of the stuff that's going on here, like it's not boring. What's happening in China isn't boring. But I think that sometimes we've become so risk-averse that people look at our faith and go, well, how can that be real? Because it's just quite boring. Because we've forgotten what it's like to really take risks. So I guess, you know, I've been so challenged by this this week. And I guess the the kind of third thing I want to say is, Let's try to rediscover rediscover what that looks like in our own lives. What does it look like to step out and take a bit of a risk? Because I think that the consequences of that are really, really exciting. And just as I finish, let's just go back to the passage. Look at what happens in verse 16. This is really, really important. When Mordecai says to Esther, you need to go to the king, look what she says. She says, go. Gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And I just wanted to finish by saying, if you're convicted to take a risk, get people to pray for you. That's so, so important. I'm just in the process of uh, leaving being a teacher and, and trying to apply to be a vicar. And there's not much risk in that. It's not risk like that. But there is some risk in that. Like, I'm going to give up my job, my career, and my income. And, and, you know, there's some days when I think, gosh, how, how will we pay our mortgage? Or what will that look like? And it, some days it does feel like a risk. And so I just keep saying to people, pray for me. Pray for me because this feels like a massive risk. Um, And I think that that last bit in Esther is so important, that if you feel challenged in any way to step out and do something different, get people around you who you trust and who you know will be faithful in praying for you. 
So three things just to summarize that I think this story of Esther tells us. One, find people that you respect. Spend time with them and try to learn from their convictions. Two, seek to live a life that is transparent and one of integrity. Who you are in one context should be who you are in every context. And thirdly, don't be afraid to take risks. If God has laid something on your heart that you need to do, then you need to do it. But just make sure that you get people to pray for you. Amen. Should we stand?